All right. Well, as you know, last Sunday we began the final chapter of our study in the book of Philippians. And so turn there, if you would, Philippians chapter 4. Now, last week we spent our time looking at verses 1 through 3, where, as I stated then, I believe chapter 4, verse 1 really should be the final verse of chapter 3. It tends to fit uh, very well there. And for that reason, we did spend a good amount of time last week going through chapter 3, and so I won't review that verse this morning. But as far as looking back at verses 2 and 3, I believe this urging by Paul to these two women in the Philippian church, uh, Eodia and Syntyche, plus the other person who was asked to step in, I believe doing this was a great reminder not only to you and me as individuals, but also you and to me as corporately the church and how we can and should deal with uh, those times of division, disunity. And that does happen in churches, certainly, trust me. But before we do a quick review of those, uh, those two verses, I'm going to drop back and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as I did last time, just just to prepare us. In chapter 2, starting at verse 1, uh, where it says if, remember these are all should be read as since. Okay, This is a, a fulfilled condition. These things have already happened, so it's not a hypothetical. It's not an if, it's a since. He says, he's telling the church in Philippi, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion, he says, then, or therefore, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And so he he stopped right there real quick. So he's obviously, there's something going on in the church. He feels he has to share that. We, We need to bring this into the fellowship. Okay, so there's a little bit of rifts going on somewhere. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, he says so in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm, I'm not going to obviously break these verses down. I've already done that when we went through this chapter, but I just wanted to use this as a reminder for all of us this morning that all of us, believe it or not, need to have a focus on this literally for the rest of our lives. As believers in Christ, we're always going to be involved in a fellowship, whether it be here at Discover or somewhere else, wherever it may be, but we want to make sure we are faithful and being a part of these places because sadly too many of us have seen the breakdown of many a local church, okay? Now, as we look at and review chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we're going to see what happens when the principles that I just read about in chapter 2, we're going to see what happens if they're not followed, okay? He says in verses 2 and 3, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord Yes, and I also ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side 
in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So from what we can see, we have a situation here where two of the women in the church are at a point where whatever it is they are arguing about, whatever it is they are disagreeing over, is at a point where Paul had to mention their names in an open letter to the church. In verse 2, he says, he pleads or he urges both of these women, he says, to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, when Paul says he wants these two women to agree with each other, that does not mean that Christians can never disagree. That's always a point that I, I, I want to get across. And that's why in this case, I really prefer the, the translation of the NAS, which says that they are to live in harmony, okay? Listen, unless the, the, the matter, the subject matter that these two women are dealing with, unless it is one of sin, unless it is one of disobedience to the word of God, the point is, as we would say today, you want to agree to disagree, okay? You can live, folks, in harmony and in have communion with one another, certainly in the local church, when you disagree on non-essential issues. Essential issues are very important. You want to battle those, you want to debate those, you want to stand firm on those. On non-essential, maybe even non-biblical, maybe it's something stupid as, you know, should we buy a new projector, whatever the issue may be, understand that you're going to have people who disagree, okay? I mean, I know myself, theologically speaking, I have good friends, Thomas and Sarah would be a couple of those, a great godly couple, we all know them. Um, they would lean toward the Arminian viewpoint in, in their theological bent. I, you know, I have friends who lean toward the Calvinist side in their theological bent. I have great fellowship with either one. See, it doesn't always have to be that, that kind of division. But unfortunately, as we're going to see here in our text, that obviously was not happening in this church. Now, I'll guarantee you that these two women knew what they should be doing, okay? They know how this disagreement should be handled, okay? And to me, that means that their stubbornness, that means their self-will, that means their pride is winning the day. And I know we all understand that because we've all had those days. <laughs> we've lost the battle to our own pride, and I think that is what's going on here. To the point, you'll notice verse 3, Paul had to ask somebody in the church to step up and to intervene. Now, in many translations, you'll notice he uses the word true companion, okay? I think most translations actually do that. In the NIV, he calls them, or this person, a loyal yoke fellow, which is actually the more literal translation. Most of us know what a yoke is, right? You might think of a, a yoke of oxen and whatnot, okay? But ultimately what this means is the word loyal yoke fellow, it means that he and Paul are genuinely joined together, okay? Not, not literally like a yoke of oxen, but spiritually, okay? To me, what this says is that Paul had a close relationship with this person. It was someone that he trusted. It was someone who, spiritually speaking, he was united with, he was in agreement with. 
And therefore, Paul felt that he was mature enough that he can count on this individual to work with these two women and to bring them back into a fellowship, restore their relationship with one another. Now, as you look at this, as you did last week on these couple of verses, some of you might think, well, that's a, that's a real neat little story that Paul snuck in there. But I want you to think differently than that. I want you to understand that these are the kinds of problems. Even though it only takes up a couple verses, these are the kinds of problems that go on in churches across the country. If maybe for that matter, around the world. Okay? There's division, there is disunity, there's tension in the churches that are usually caused by just a couple of people who just cannot get things figured out. And sadly, what they do is they end up dragging others into it as well. And before you know, you have a group of what I would simply call immature people destroying the local church from within. There are some of you here at this church who've seen that kind of stuff, people that you have fellowship with, enjoyed, uh, like we do right now, enjoying our time with each other. You're involved in each other's lives, and in a heartbeat, it's like you've never met them, and it's the devil incarnate. It's unbelievable when you sit back and shaking your head just isn't good enough at what can take place, which is why I've always told people to very much guard yourself and to what you do, what you say, and I will always do my best, as you know. I will never let anybody in this church who will come in here and try to divide us. We've had that before. It's been a few years. We had a guy, a couple guys come in here and saying, how, well, we need to do this and this. We, even as Christians, we need to celebrate the Passover, and we need to do this and this. And he was just telling, talking it up, and I finally just told him to leave. I said, I'm not going to have you coming in here and, and starting this kind of garbage. Okay? And so I, I just made him leave. And, and, I would, and, I, and I told him, as much as I would tell anybody here, which I, don't, I know we don't have this issue here, but um, you know, if somebody in here is causing division, I'll kick your butt right out the front door. I'll walk with you right outside because I don't care because I'm not going to allow anybody to destroy uh, what we have at this church. You never want to see that, okay? And I don't really want to walk somebody out the door, but that's, that's the case. You have to protect the church, okay? And, but you're part of that as well as part of being a part of this body, Okay? But it all starts because all this stuff, this ugliness just simply starts with people who seem to can't fellowship with somebody who disagrees with them, right? How many of you ever heard of the cancel culture? How many of you know what it is? Okay, a few hands still stayed up. The cancel culture is, is basically uh, a group of liberals. Go figure. They're a group of liberals who do not like what somebody else has to say. How dare you think what you think because it disagrees with what I think. They can't stand when somebody in this world disagrees with them on some issue, political, gender, whatever, doesn't matter. So what do they do? They try to cancel them. If they're an actor, they, uh, they want them fired. If you're a singer, they want nobody to buy your stuff. But whatever it is, they, it's like they don't think you should be able to breathe. They don't think you should be able to make money. You should have people picketing in front of your house. Why? Simply because you disagree with them. And we all hate that. That's ridiculous, right? That's stupid. 
But yeah, that's exactly what happens in the church. The church can split. The church can divide. Ugliness happens with what used to be best friends because you disagree on something. We must remember that. Now, moving forward into verses 4 through 7 this morning, even though it may seem that these verses are on different topics, um, as if Paul is moving from one point to the next, and, and don't get me wrong, sometimes Paul does do that. Um, if you read some of his books, I hope you've read all of them, um, sometimes the last chapter, it's like you know, he's got 15 more things he wants to say, 15 more pages he can write, but he knows he can't do that, and so he'll just hit on areas real quick. So he will do that sometimes. But here, I think it's, I think it's clear that if you read the verses, that what he is still dealing with, I would say, is the effect Okay? It's the effect of what took place in verses 2 and 3. Okay? In other words, how are we to respond when things don't seem to be going as well as they should? How is that to affect me as a part of the body of Christ? I mean, this is the church, right? Everybody should get along perfectly. Read with me verses 4 through 7. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If this sounds familiar, it's because Seth stole the thunder a couple weeks ago and went through this section during Sunday school. I joked with him. I said, you have 66 books of the Bible and you choose this little section that I'm going to be doing in a couple weeks. All right. So if, if, if I say something today, don't walk up to me afterward and say, Seth doesn't believe that. That's not what Seth said. I'll deal with Seth later. <laughs> he knows I'm kidding. So here in this section, whenever you're going through an argument, which we all have, whenever you are going through a disagreement or, if you will, relational difficulties, especially with other Christians, it's extremely hard to be happy. It happens with someone in whom you are unified with in the faith. It's okay if the issue is with you and a non-believer. It seems to be a little bit easier. But when it comes up with somebody in the church or maybe another believer from outside you're, you're good friends with, it seems to be very difficult because you are unified under Christ, you could fellowship, you could talk about things that nobody else can. You, some of you, you may worship with them on Sunday morning or maybe go to a Bible study throughout the week. You're, you're kind of tight with these people. And sometimes it's, it's very difficult to go through a struggle in that kind of a relationship. And typically, the reason is because there's a higher expectation when you're dealing with someone of like-minded faith. You can expect certain things from the machine shop, 
from you know the contractor's job site and all this kind of stuff, but you're going like, no, not 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 these people, right? Don and myself had a a, a friend. Uh, you still consider him a friend. I haven't seen him since we moved here. A couple times we have. Uh, I would say this was 20 years ago. A man named Robert. Robert came to faith in Christ, and uh, I ended up meeting with him once a week. And uh, he came to our Bible study and came to our church. And um, he was learning, he was growing. And uh, Robert was um, uh, always kind of worked in maintenance, janitorial, those kinds of things. And a large church in our area uh, was looking for a janitor full-time. And so Robert went and applied for it, and he got the job. Well, I remember Robert was excited. He was just pumped. Man, how awesome is it going to be to work with Christians every day? Thank you, Bill. But see, Bill got it. He knows. He knows. He goes, yeah, I've done that before. But see, even I get some looks from you two as well, you folks. It's like, man, how great. Get to work with other Christians every day. And you're like, oh. And that's kind of what happened. See, Robert expected more. He said, man, we're, gonna, we're working, doing our jobs, but we can fellowship, maybe even pray for somebody, talk about the word, ask questions. Man, this is going to be awesome. But he was really let down. He was really let down. Ultimately, he wasn't very happy, and he ended up leaving there, leaving the job. And part of that is because he expected something better from Christians, and he should, Right? We chuckle at it, but he should. You see, folks, happiness revolves around circumstances. Robert thought that an everyday job was going to bring them a happy adventure, right? Christians everywhere. Well, it's no different than what's taking place here in the Philippian church, as we saw from verses 2 and 3. Happiness might not be constant, Problems are going to arise. Someone's pride is going to rear its ugly head. But listen, that should not change the joy that you have within you. You see, folks, happiness and joy are two different things. Being happy is based on your surroundings. Being happy is based on your circumstances. Being happy is based on how you feel But joy is not some feeling that we have. Joy is a surety. It is an assurance that no matter the situation, whether it's at work, no matter the disappointing relationships between two people at your church, no matter what you see in the news, it's a lot of negative, a lot of garbage. Folks, doesn't matter. God is still in control. God is still on the throne. God didn't sit back shocked and surprised that these things are happening. I had no idea. Nothing's changed with God. See, your relationship with God, the forgiveness that he has granted each and every one of us, the grace and the mercy that he bestows on us every single day is still intact. It hasn't changed. Do we understand that? It's like I was just, the other day I was sitting in my office thinking, and like, it's like you have this box right here, and it's, it's God, and it's, here, over here is our life. 
And man, we're like this, right? We're up, down, left, right, people, friends, jobs, money, kids, you know, whatever. Man, we're as stable as all get out right here because this is based on Almighty God. We haven't moved, haven't budged. We can always have that joy. It's not based on circumstances. It's based on our relationship with Him. See, to be an object of God's love is something that should always bring us joy. You may have a bad day, but you know what? If you died 20 minutes later, you'd be in the glory of God. You may have a bad day, but God still cares you and cares for you, loves you, has not taken you out because of his phenomenal mercy. It's pretty amazing. Just like here in verse 4, we kind of need to be reminded of that. We'll see what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So here you have the Apostle Paul. You've got to think about who's telling them this. Here you have the Apostle Paul currently, you remember, currently being held captive, right? Remember, he's being held by Rome right now. Can't go anywhere. So here's Paul at this point being held captive, one who certainly understands trials. He understands persecution. He understands suffering, total depravity. He is telling the church, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. Obviously an emphasis on that word, always. It's, you know, it's no different than if I come up to you and say something and it's like, you know, I, I notice that you're a joyful person all the time, but you're not now. What's changed? That shouldn't change. And that's what he's saying. Hey, look, at, I know you understand about rejoicing in God, but you need to do it all the time because your relationship with God doesn't change. See, two things to point out real quick. Number one, you and I often, often confuse internal joy with temporary happiness. I think we confuse that too much. And because of that, there are times in our lives when circumstances, there are times when we are deflated because our thoughts are on um, our ever-changing surroundings instead of the, Im the immutable or the unchanging nature of God. We focus, and I mean, I'm, I'm just as guilty as anybody, we focus on what's happening right now or tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, or whatever happens, instead of understanding the unchanging nature of God. That's what joy is. Happiness, a little different. You may struggle with your meeting tomorrow at 10 o'clock or whatever happens, but that's not the joy that we can have always. See, because God is his unchanging nature. And that's where number two comes in. The reason for the word always is because we rejoice how? What does he say? In the Lord. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. It's not in my job. It's not in my raise. It's not in they fit into my jeans. <laughs> Sometimes that gets harder every year, doesn't it? But whatever it is, we don't rejoice in that. We rejoice in the Lord. Because his plan isn't going to change. His character isn't going to change. God's nature is not going to change. His justice, his mercy, his mercy, and on and on. It's not going to change. The difficult circumstances that we go through, even, it's, even if it's with those in the church, like we saw in verses 2 and 3, 
We can always rejoice because of our standing in the Lord because it's immovable. God just all of a sudden didn't stop forgiving you. Where he forgives us as far as the east is from the west, he didn't just start erasing the west part. He says, you know, I've been pouring my my mercy upon you because in reality, folks, none of us are, we shouldn't wake up every day, right? We're thankful that we wake up every day. If God took a little bit of his mercy away, we'd be in trouble. But he, he, he continues to bless each and every one of us, see? Our standing with him is immovable. So when life kicks you in the teeth, when trials are very difficult, when relationships falter, we hate when relationships falter, we all do. Everything remains in Christ. See, he still loves you, he still cares for you, and he will still continue to fulfill his promises all the way until you reach your eternal home, which he said he's there now preparing a place for you. He didn't lie about that either, and that's not going to change. We can always rejoice. Don't confuse it with happiness. Next, in verse 5, I believe we're still feeding off of that situation there from verses 2 and 3. He says here in verse 5, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Greek word there for gentleness, uh, sadly, if you will, can be translated in many, many ways, okay? Because one verse, I'm sorry, one word just doesn't do the trick. So many times people think that you can just take a Greek word and throw it over here and the English word and we'll call it a day. Not even close. doesn't work that way, okay? Now, the word gentle can mean gentle. It can also mean yielding. It can mean kind, it can mean forbearing, it can mean lenient. And believe it or not, there's about 10 other words I did not write down. I think the ESV translates it reasonableness. Ken, do you have the ESV, right? Is that what it says? Reasonableness. Yeah. The true definition of the word, it speaks of an attitude where one is willing to yield their rights and show consideration to others. It's an attitude when one is willing to yield their rights, right, I don't deserve this, and yield that consideration to others. Matter of fact, the NLT, the New Living Translation, says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. MacArthur describes it as this, a little tougher. He says, it's the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure justice. It produces that patience that endures disgrace and mistreatment. Listen, without retaliation, without bitterness or vengeance. Well, you know that's the Lord truly having to work in your heart for that one, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure there's somebody out there who literally would define this. It's the ability to bite your tongue. To humbly accept what's going on. Be the bigger person. Sometimes we have to do that. We don't want to. See. And that's why it goes on. It's, it produces that patience even when there's injustice. And we do that without retaliation and so forth. It's like, it's like the struggle we saw with these two women in, in, in verses 2 and 3 
this revolves around, obviously, their relationship with one another. Therefore, for us, it revolves around our relationship with one another. See? If anything, that struggling relationship from verses 2 and 3, which, which needed intervention from somebody else in the church, that may have spurned on Paul to say, you know what, there needs to be consideration for others. There needs to be that non-retaliatory spirit. That can be a huge benefit, he's saying, in avoiding these kinds of altercations. That's why I believe we're kind of always still feeding a little bit off of maybe what's happened here in verses 2 and 3. If we have that, quote, gentle or reasonable spirit, that yielding point where we give up ourself, he says we're going we're gonna to save a lot. We're going to avoid a lot of altercations. And that's for all of us, not one of us. It's very beneficial. Now, as far as the final statement there in verse 5, the Lord is near. I looked at every translation. Every translation has it as its own sentence. There's a period before it. There's a period after it. Okay? Now, there's not a whole lot to really say on this, but if anything, I believe it's an encouragement. Okay? It's not a doctrinal thing. It's not, it's not uh, to point out any kind of a certain uh, eschatological viewpoint. The early church, we know this, the early church seemed to think that Christ was going to return in their lifetime. When you go through Scripture, that you, you kind of seem to get a feel for that. And so, uh, as it connects with the first part of this verse, right, the whole concept of, of gentleness, right, it's like he's saying going through those difficult times, it's like he's saying, hang in there, be strong through this, have that non-retaliatory spirit, hang in there, the Lord is near. Okay? Going through this ugliness, be strong, do what God's called you to do, because the Lord is near. It's similar to what James says in James 5.8. You ladies will go through this, I'm sure, soon. He says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. It's always that encouragement, okay? Don't let life's troubles weigh you down. Be faithful, continue to honor God. It won't be much longer and the Lord's gonna return. That's kind of the mindset that you can see how it fits just like that. All right, let's move from there on into verse 6. Did somebody mess with my watch? It says it's 10 after 12. All right, let's move on into verse 6. Notice what he says. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is a verse that some people teach without a context because the principles really are the same. As you know me, I'm very big on context. That's how we interpret Scripture. It's a big part of hermeneutics. You understand the Word of God as you look at the immediate context. Um, but certainly, but this is really one of those verses that you can teach it in, in, in any context and it still comes out the same. The principles don't change. Okay? 
But as far as our immediate context, there's a couple different options. We can view this in light of verses 2 and 3 and how this tension is affecting the people, right? It's also affecting their worship service, okay? Hence, bringing anxiety. Or maybe you can look at this in the larger viewpoint of how Paul himself, as you know, is currently under house arrest. Therefore, we know that this church is troubled. They are overly concerned with what's going on with Paul. He didn't even know if he was going to live or not. You can also take this verse and just, as we have just done, come right off of verse 5, right? Where he says, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious, right? Many ways we can look at this. But any way we do that, it remains the same. And that is simply Paul's admonition, we are not to be anxious. Now, that does not mean, I think it's important we sometimes understand what it doesn't mean, does not mean that we are to have some uh, carefree lifestyle, we have no concerns, and we overlook our responsibilities. Well, I'm trying not to be stressful. And so just have this nonchalant, whatever, attitude at life. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying in difficult times, whatever the issue is, right, whoever is involved, it could be at home, it could be at work. It could be in the church, right? Whatever the situation may be, he says we are not to let excessive worry or anxiety consume us. By the way, that word anxiety right there, or be anxious, it's, the, it's used more, uh, it's translated more as worry than it is anxious, but just so you know. This happens, folks, when we let things consume us. This happens when we allow concern. Concern's a good thing, nothing wrong, that we should be concerned about many things. But when we allow concern to go to the next level, and then we allow anxiety to control us. See? When I was, when I was young, I, I'm going to say 12 or 13 years of age, my mother, like all mothers do, would say things to me that would confuse me. Did you hear that, mothers? All mothers do that. My mom would say things to me that completely confused me. I had no idea what she meant. I'm just. My mom used to say to me, Darren, you're going to worry yourself sick. I'm 12. What does that mean? I had no idea what that meant. I'm going to worry myself sick. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that advice. <laughs> Many years later, I understood because that became a reality. I did worry myself sick. Overstress myself, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, and so on and so forth. Today, for the average person, I would say, Anxiety, unnecessary worry, is because we don't trust God. It's easier said, right? It's easier said when you're in a spot, you're struggling, you're anxious, stressed, whatever, it's, it's, it's starting to control you a little bit. But it's ultimately because we don't trust God with whatever that situation is. Now listen, Paul's not talking about you know, an anxiety disorder here. 
There's a difference between anxiety, being anxious, than an anxiety disorder. There's a difference between being depressed and having depression. It's that same thing. He's talking about someone who has a clear-thinking mind, but instead of grasping the fact that God is sovereign and therefore God is in control, he knows what's going on, nothing outside of his purview, but the focus is more on the situation than the creator. And we do that. We, we tend to focus on what's happening instead of knowing that, okay, God's, God's still there. Nothing's changed in my life. His promises aren't going away because this happened or that happened. We Many times we just don't trust God through this situation. We think the worst, don't we? We think something, it, it, we, we take something maybe minimal and 20 minutes later, it's huge. It's massive. And it really isn't. But I really believe, as someone who struggled with that, it's, it's, we, we, we don't trust in the Lord. As Barnes has noted, we are to have such confidence in God as to free the mind of anxiety and such a sense of dependence on Him as to keep it calm. That's a that's a close-knit relationship with God right there where you don't stress or worry about things. Oh yeah, things happen in life. We don't like them. We're not fans. Don't get me wrong. But, but you just say, well, I, okay, I can't overcome that. I've got to move forward and deal with it to the best of my ability. See? I believe Seth looked at a, 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 these few verses a couple weeks ago, but I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I'm not going to, uh, to dissect this section. We certainly don't have the time. But I just want to read it, okay? Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Very applicable to our text here, to this verse more specifically. Seth, should I have you come up and finish my sermon for me? No? Not ready yet? <laughs> Not yet, okay. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more, more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life. So you can see even right there that he's talking about just the basic stuff in life, right? The paycheck to paycheck mindset. How am I going to, you know, school starting, kids need new clothes. I don't have enough money to, to make it through the week for food, right? Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, something needs to be a first priority there. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. As you can see from that text, according to Jesus, it truly is an issue of not trusting God, isn't it? I mean, he even says there, O you of little faith. I think, folks, and I, I put myself in this camp, I think sometimes we have a low view of God. If we know, if we put God where he should be, oh, we, we, we would trust him more. We would believe in him more. We would respond to him differently. But sometimes we have a low view of God. It's like, it's like asking a, a, a grunt. Maybe you work in a construction site and you're asking the grunt to do this big job. You're going to be stressed. You're going to be worried. Is he ain't going to know what he's going to be doing. He doesn't know what he's going to do. This is going to be rough. And, and you're going to keep looking over his shoulder, make sure he does it right. But if you put a professional in there, you won't have to worry about it. So sometimes we kind of look at God that way. I think we keep God down here instead of who he really is. See? And that causes a problem with us. If we were to go through this text that I just read there in Matthew 6, I think many of you would agree 100% as we went through the text. I might even get a hearty amen going through that text. We would all stand firm. The problem is when we have to apply that personally. It's easier to read, and it makes complete sense. And we know it's true. We do. But when all of a sudden that comes tumbling down on you on Monday morning, oh, man, it's harder than that. See? We need to learn more of God's character. We need to learn more of God's nature, his purpose, in order to be uh, firmly um, stable or have stable footing in our walk with the Lord. Because I think that'll help us in these other areas, see? It's like sometimes we think God's not in control. We know he is, but we act as if he isn't. Well, back in Philippians 4, another answer to anxiety, you'll notice there, is prayer. Once again, verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests. To God. There's four separate things that he mentions there. Number one is the obvious, it's the word prayer. Prayer, generally speaking, is communication with God, right? We communicate with God. Here, it's communication with God as an act of worship. And that kind of hit me a little bit. Communication with God as an act of worship. Remember, we're talking about prayer. See? For example, you think back of the Lord's Prayer, right? You remember the Lord's Prayer? Do you remember how we approach God in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. See? Do we do that? Do we do that even in our own hearts? In our minds? Do we understand who we are approaching here? The word petition it, it, it's requesting an answer to a need. It means you're requesting an answer to a need. 
We all understand that, right? You're asking God to fulfill what you are inquiring. We get it. Thanksgiving is something that we lack in. We need to do that more often. It's an attitude of the heart that should always accompany one's prayers. The fact that we should be thankful for the fact that we can actually pray before God Almighty. I know we tend to think, and which is okay, hey, I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into the kingdom. I've been redeemed, right? Covered in the blood of Christ. All those are true. But we're undeserving of every one of those. So we should be thankful that we can pour our hearts out to God. And lastly, he mentions the word requests. The words request here, folks, are things that are definite, things that are specific. And this is where the church today at large doesn't quite get it. You've heard me say this before, and I'll I'll say it again. Stop with the prayers that say, be with them. Okay? Be with so-and-so. What does that even mean? What does that mean? God is there. He's omnipresent. He's with them. Does that mean heal them of their cancer? Does that mean get them a job? Does that mean help them to overcome sickness? What does that even mean? God says to be specific. You ask specific things. If somebody has cancer, ask God about the cancer. Talk about the loss of the paycheck. Talk about the sickness. Whatever it is. But they're specifics. See, remember the petition, you're talking about an answer to a need. Here, it's specifics. What is it? What's your need? What what, what What are you talking to God about? Folks, prayer isn't flippant, not that you think it is, but maybe sometimes we all treat it that way. Because he says right here, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious. Instead, pray. He says, if you will, for lack of better terms, the cure for anxiety, he says, is prayer. Spend time with me. Talk to me. Talk to me on a level that I am. I am a holy God. Talk to me specifically. Be thankful. Be grateful. Get into that. You know, get rid of the mindset of throwing your feet up on the table and praying. I'm not saying that's you know, a sin, but sometimes we teach ourselves to look at that flippantly. We're not trying to, but we do. So what's the point? When worry rears its head, we need to lower ours. Or maybe we need to bow ours. When worry rears its head, we need to bow ours and come before the one who knows how to deal with our struggle. Folks, God understands what we're going through, okay? When you're in a weird situation and you're praying about something, it's not like you have to explain it to God. He gets it. He understands it. He knows it. Matter of fact, he knew you were going to go through it before you went through it. And now it's his desire that you seek him in the midst of it. We've talked about this, and I'm sure every pastor, every church has. So many times, there's something going on in our life, pick from a thousand things, and all of a sudden, somewhere around 957, oh man, maybe we should pray. When ultimately, the first thing we need to do is say, you know what, let's just stop. Let's pray. Let's seek wisdom. Let's ask God to guide us, help us. Uh, Don't necessarily ask God to take away the problem. God, guide me through the problem. Take away the problem, there's no growth. I get it. I don't like problems either. I do. (laughs) 
what we pray, God, take this away. Well, God, that's how God is going to cause growth in you. Like going back to James, consider all joy when you fall into trials of many kinds because this takes place, right? Well, I don't want the trial. Well, if you don't have the trial, then you don't got that. What follows? We need to be reminded that nothing is too great for God and nothing's really too small either. If you think you need to to talk to God about, you know, going shopping, go right ahead. But you know what? If that draws you closer to the Lord, great. If it makes you feel more comfortable about spending time with God, I, fine. But as you know, there's always that subject matter of prayer, which we always can do better at. But he says, anxiety, pray. Pray. Worshipfully, pray. Right? So if you're struggling with anxiety, your mind won't stop worrying about something. You come before the king of the universe. Paul says in verse 7, and guess what? He will give you peace. Or actually, I'll say it specifically. He will give you the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. And he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice this is not peace with God, Okay. We already have, if you are born again, you already have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have peace with God through the blood of Christ. He says we are to have the peace of God through that important time in prayer, we can't forget that because we just talked about it, through that important time of prayer, that time when it's quiet, you know, people, when I was a young Christian, people used to always use this term, go in your closet, you know, like not literally, but that's like, just go be, on your, go be by yourself. Go where it's quiet and pray. Sometimes when I study, I put on my ear protection that we go shooting with. It might seem a little odd if you'd walk by my house going, what's he doing in there? But it's very quiet. It's very quiet. See, I can think better. I can focus more. It's that inner peace. We can have an inner tranquility of soul, if you will, granted by God. But he says it starts with prayer, right? Now, folks, listen. This peace is not something that is normal. Okay? He says here it's peace that transcends all understanding. That means it surpasses. It goes beyond the norm. Okay? I would say it's supernatural. It's something that no human can reproduce. I don't care about your counselor. Sorry, counselors. I don't care about your psychiatrist. Sorry about those. I, it doesn't matter. You can't do what God can. This is something that can lift the believer above the most debilitating trial. God says it's prayer. It's our time with him. See, the work of God through his Holy Spirit, through your time, my time in prayer, can make a change in you that Paul says will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So not only will it help you in the midst of it, but it can guard you from it. You know what I'm saying? In other words, our inner man, if you will, where all of these, these, these anxious, 
worrisome thoughts come from can remain in peace through our prayer and our confident trust in Him. Because once again, remember, you can spend great time in prayer, but if you don't trust God, it doesn't really matter. And I'll guarantee you, myself and everyone in this room are lacking in that. And trusting God, go back to get to know who God is. Do a study on theology, study of God, theology proper, study of God the Father. Get to know who God is, his character, his very nature. And therefore, I think he'll be lifted up. He already, he's already there, but in our minds, he'll be lifted to the position that he deserves. There's no formula to this. A lot of people like formulas. There is none. It's, it's you, it's me. It's coming before God with a heart that desires to know him, a heart that desires to seek him, a heart that wants his will. You know, too many times we think of God as a celestial vending machine, just throw in a prayer, God, give me this, this is what I want, and move on. You don't want anything from God. You just, you want fire insurance and you want what he has to give you. It's like the word faith movement. Just give me something. Oh, really, God? If I give you 100 bucks, you'll give me 1,000? Sure, great. You just, you just give to get. We don't want to be those kind of people. Whether God grants us what we want or not, we want to seek him to that extent. Okay? Well, I'm way overdue. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time today. We thank you for this section of Scripture. We thank you for the challenge uh, the concept of prayer, the, the understanding of anxiety, which I'm sure we all to a certain level struggle with. Of course, the understanding that we should rejoice in you always, not just through good times, but also in bad. And Lord, help us to have that, that mindset within us to know that, uh, that our relationship with you isn't changing through a difficult time. We could have a great day at work or a bad day at work, but nothing changes. We can always rejoice in you. So Lord, help us as we struggle with um, the, the changing of happiness and joy and that even through difficult times we can dig deep and find joy in Christ. And that's a, that's a great thing in and of itself. Lord, help our prayer life. Help us as it deals with reality. Help us as it deals with anxiety. We all do. We live in a, a weird world, a, a time where it's, it's easy to be anxious. We see evil and wickedness and perversion going on all the time. And so even for things like this, for those who have kids who have to deal with this stuff, even in schools, Lord, the anxiety can be there. Help our prayer life to be great. Our time with you to be worshipful because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.